Well, good morning. I'd also like to extend my invitation. Uh, My name is Josh. I'm also one of the pastors on staff. Uh, And so it's good to be here this morning. It's exciting to come together and to get in before the snow falls or sleet or whatever white thing will come down out of the sky theoretically this evening, which I know it's after Thanksgiving and I'm still not ready for it. Um, So if you are, I'm excited for you. Uh, And if you're not, you can commiserate with me after the service um, about everyone having to learn how to drive again, because that's what will happen tomorrow morning at eight. Um, We're in the, we're, we're in this conversation on this Sunday talking about Christ the King and what that looks like as the, as Advent comes upon us, as the days get shorter and the darkness gets longer This is a final Sunday to come together and to celebrate that Christ is Lord and Christ is King. In the midst of all of that too, we're we're looking at that and it's coupled with this general understanding that we have that the Christian life in faith is not a static thing. It is not something, it is not a fact that you understand and you go, oh, I get E equals MC squared, I've got it figured out and I can sit it down and do whatever I want now. But the faith of, the Christian faith is a journey that we progress through. It's an exploration. It's something we discover and engage and interacts and changes day by day. And so as we gather for this Sunday and we're talking about Christ as King and what that looks like, it's really coupled with how is it that we live our faith and our life together? And really, we're looking primarily uh, at three key understandings that show up. It's a sermon. It's supposed to have three, right? That's the way it works. Um, but there's actually three this time. Uh, three, three understandings that feel crucial for what it means for us as, as people of faith. Whether you are close to faith and it feels strong and vibrant, or whether it feels distant and far away. Three things that impact how we understand and how we live this life together. But before we dig into some of those... Uh, Let's hear our scripture reading from the day. This is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. I've had the privilege throughout my life of living in a couple of different places, right? I haven't been a refugee, uh, but I've moved around some over the years. We've been, my wife and family and I have been in Grand Rapids for about 10 at this stage. But before that, we traveled around a fair amount. Uh, My first big move was to New York. Uh, to New York City. I grew up in Reed City, Michigan, small town, 4,000 people, twice as many deer, four times as many pine trees. Um, and I grew up there and moved to New York City after college. I followed a cute girl there. I actually married the cute girl and then I followed her there. Um, but I moved to New York. And it's interesting when you go to a different place and specifically when you go and live in a different place for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, one that I continually find interesting is really just issues of language. Because different people speak differently in different parts of the world, right? Even if we share the same language, it is not the same. And so New York is not that dissimilar from Michigan. You would talk on the street and aside from the stereotypical, forget about it. Most other interaction felt very normal and the same. There wasn't the Southern y'all. It was a pretty straightforward interaction for the most part. 
One of the things that I thought was interesting, though, uh, one phrase that they have is that you never stand in line in New York. In New York, for whatever reason, you always stand on line. And so I moved there and I thought, this is a weird expression, but okay, we've all got weird expressions. This is yours. Uh, I don't ever think I'm going to say this dumb thing, but whatever. And of course, a couple years later, I'm with a friend. We were, uh, I was working in a retail store. We were on our lunch break. We were chatting outside of a restaurant. We are going to go grab a quick bite to eat at. And the words come tumbling out. Hey, let's go, let's go get online before we... And at that stage, I kind of just shut my mouth and looked down and smiled and thought, huh, that's funny. It kind of creeped in. After New York, we left and we traveled around for a bit. My wife and I did. This is before we had kids. We traveled around and we ended up in the UK. So we were living in Northern England. England in America shared language that is fundamentally different. Uh, Oscar Wilde at one stage said, it is in England, in America, that we have two people that are separated by a common language. There's very little, and I mean, we speak, we can understand, but words are fundamentally different. Bathrooms become loos. Elevators become lifts. My favorite one, still one of my favorite ones, is vans or minivans become people movers. It's a real thing. Uh, it really confused me the first time I saw a minivan and someone commented on the people mover and I thought, no. Okay. And it's really interesting to talk. I'm still in touch with friends from the UK. When I engage with them, uh, it is as if this vast repository of words suddenly opens up. Phrases, expressions, intonations, the way you would say things. It changes the way I text. One of my old interns just had a baby. Uh, four weeks ago. So I was texting saying, how you doing? What's going where? How can I pray for you? And the text that I sent came through differently than how I text my American friends. And again, I just thought, huh, it's so weird. I am continually amazed by the way in which our surroundings impact us and how deeply we are influenced by the things around us. I don't think I realized that till I left and I went to somewhere that wasn't home and then I realized and made a new home and established something and then I realized the degree to which we are influenced by the things around us in our everyday life. And that has me thinking on this Sunday when we talk about Christ as king and Christ's kingdom is breaking in and we live in a world where we are impacted in deep ways by the things around us. What shall we do? How do you live in a land that is not your own, that is impacting you, that is shaping you in ways that you may not always agree with? We know Christ is king, and yet here we are. What do we do? I think to do that, we really have to run through three basic things, like I said in the beginning, right? I think we have to understand ourselves to start, And we could talk about that forever, but we're going to put a little pin holder in that one and move on. But we need to understand with the reality that we're impacted and shaped by the things around us. I think we also need to understand the topography of the landscape we find ourselves in. We need to understand the reality of the world around us. We need to understand our relationship to the terrain around us, really. Uh, A philosophy professor over at Calvin, Jamie Smith, has written some really interesting things along these lines. Probably his most prominent book is one called You Are What You Love. Uh, And in it, Jamie basically makes the argument that we 
become like the things that we most admire in life, as you would expect a philosophy professor to make the argument for, right? We become like the things that we most admire, and eventually we become the things that we most admire. And he goes on to elaborate in what that looks like for our culture in particular, for a fairly intellectual, engaged, thoughtful culture, right? He's a philosophy professor for Pete's sake. He thinks, it's his head. This is what he does. And at the same time, he acknowledges and understands that there's a deeper sense of reality that occurs. So he gives this example that uh, he was reading about food and where food comes from and what food is and what food we should eat and what food shouldn't we eat. You know, so he was reading the likes of Michael Pollan and he was reading the likes of Wendell Berry that say food should come from slow places. It should not be mass produced. Chicken nuggets aren't really a thing on a chicken. So maybe we should think about why we eat so many chicken nuggets. So they make that kind of argument. And Jamie Smith finds this compelling. Chicken nuggets are awesome. Don't get me wrong. Um, Jamie finds this argument compelling, right? And so he's reading books, he's devouring books, and he's going, yeah, 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 intellectually, yeah, yeah, yeah. He finds himself one day, he's reading a book at a food court. He's reading, he's underlining, he's circling, he's doing the thing you do when you find something really engaging and you're talking to yourself like you're nuts. He's like, yeah, yeah, this is great, yeah, amen, amen. And then he looks up and he remembers what food court he's in because he is at the food court in Costco reading about food justice and that we should know our farmers and that we should know where things come from. The reality is, as in the same way that language seeps in if you have lived somewhere else, the world shapes us and influences us in ways that we aren't even often aware of, in ways that we don't pay attention to. It is not an intellectual thing. Often it is an emotional thing. It is a, almost a physiological thing. The way in which we learn and are shaped is as much unconscious as it is conscious. It's not just that we need to understand uh, the, our relationship to the terrain, though. And it's also we need to understand our relationship to how we move through the terrain. And really, and in particular, the difference between what it means to be a resident of a place and what it means to be a citizen of a place. Again, if you have lived elsewhere, if you've traveled elsewhere, this is, feels pretty true and straightforward. Saeed's giving me a head nod, and he understands this well. But if you haven't, or if you've always stayed at home, it sometimes is easy to lose. That the call of Christ, the call of Jesus, is one's towards citizenship. And citizenship is an ultimate destination. It is the place where you line up. It is the ultimate allegiance that you have and how you understand value and worth versus the place that you find yourself today. It was a weird thing to live in England for two years and to realize that these were my people and these were not my people. I wasn't going to be here long term. I was never British. I was always American and I was always going to be American. It affects the way we understand the terrain when it realizes that, that this place and this land in which we find ourselves, while it has many good things, is ultimately not our home. It shows up in, in, in verses. The scriptures talk about this, and they talk about it from time to time. Uh, it shows up in verses like in 1 Peter 2, which says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession." 
that you may declare praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. What it means to believe, what it means to follow Christ as best we can on any given day is to acknowledge the fact that our citizenship lies not in this world, but in the kingdom of God. And while we find ourselves in the trenches and in the battle and the day-to-day life of the here and now, and that matters, and it very much matters, our identity is rooted in the work of Jesus that pulls us elsewhere. And that keeps us from building and setting down roots in ways that are unhealthy for us. Because again, faith is a journey and an exploration. And lastly, we need to talk about why we move through the terrain. What's going on in the midst of all of that. And fundamentally, that comes down to worship. Now, worship is a tricky word, and you may say, why worship, or I don't get this, or what's, what's going on with there? So bear with me for a minute. Worship, we often talk, when we reference it, we think of it as singing, but that sells it short. Worship is fundamentally an issue of trust. Worship is an issue of allegiance. It's an issue of value. There's a quote by uh, David Foster Wallace that I like. David Foster Wallace is, uh, was an author. Um, this comes from his book, This is Water. And he was not a believer, Um, and these are parting words said at a commencement. He says, you get to choose what to worship. But here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to numb, uh, to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. If Jamie Smith makes the argument that we are what we love, an extension of that argument is you are what you worship. You are not what we sing about, but we are the thing we put our trust in. We are the thing that when anxiety comes, we find solace in, we find refuge in. I actually want to do a little experiment. Uh, So we're going to, normally in a sermon, I stand up here and talk and you all get to listen. Uh, But we're going to make it interactive for a minute here. Uh, Because I want to talk about uh, us. I want to talk about American and American culture. So you're going to have to find a partner or two. um, And I'm going to give you about 30 seconds. And I want you to try to identify uh, what it is you think Americans trust. 
This comes out of a study, so I'll cite this, this comes out of a study out of Georgetown from their Center of Governance and Politics. Um, They list the top five things that Americans trust. I want you to try to just talk with someone and see what you come up with. These can be broad organizations uh, or associations of people like firefighters, or it could be individual companies or or organizations like Best Buy. Neither of those are on the top five list, so I can list both of those for you. But I want you to try to figure out and just guess, and that's okay, and I know it's a little mean because you don't know, but I want you to guess what do you think some of the top five things that American trust, Americans trust are. Go. Ten seconds left. All right. Wrap it up. You want to hear what the top five are? They break it down into both Republicans and Democrats in America writ large. So this is the one for America writ large. The top five in order of most trusted. The top five are the military, Amazon, (laughs) Google, local police departments, and then colleges and universities. I don't need to belabor the point, my friends, but it is revealing that number two and number three of the organizations that we as a culture trust exist to sell us things. And it says something about the trials and scenarios that we face when those are the organizations we trust. The ancient Israelites knew this too. They knew what worship was. They knew what trust was. The ancient prayer, the longest standing prayer within Israel is often called the Shema. And that's because that's what it starts with in Hebrew is Shema, which means hear. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands I give you today will be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and gates. To be a person means to trust. To be a person means to worship. And we ultimately become like that thing that we put our trust in. The reminder for me, for you, for all of us, is to put our trust in Christ. Tim Keller, the author, church planter, pastor out of New York, refers to this and he says we need, uh, a, we need a counter-catechesis. 
a catechesis or a catechism is an old way of teaching something, normally through question and answer. That isn't done much anymore. But it's, it's a means of what, it's uh, the one in our tradition is the Heidelberg Catechism and its initial question of what is your only hope in life and death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? It's a means of teaching something. And the reality that he comments on from his 30 years of doing ministry and living in New York is that our cultures is a wizard. They are masters at giving us questions that prompt the response that sell us things, that provoke things. Amazon is number two for a reason, because they're good. And the challenge for us is we need to be aware of what is being sold and how we respond This is where the verse from Romans comes in, and this is where I find it so compelling. You know, the line, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. is deep for me, but it's also abstract, right? I love the idea of it. I love the notion of it, but there's a question in how do you actually do this? And so to, to pull back the curtain for me, to pull back the curtain for people over the years, the ways you tell what you put your trust in, what you put your faith in, often comes down to your calendar, your checkbook, and your comments. So I think comments takes on a different line when you look in the era of social media where we have people who say things and then write something else. Good, well-intentioned folks who things bleed through in ways that we don't expect. We can see our trust in where we spend our time. We can see trust in where we spend our money. But the issue at the end of the day is one of trust where there is stress and trauma, where there is crisis, where there is anxiety, where do you turn? It's funny to talk to people. It's, it's a weird job that I have, right? It's a weird job to be a pastor. And the conversations you get invited into, the conversations that you get to have, and to talk to people about trust. They go like, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know what I trust in. You go like, all right, well, what did you do when your mom died? What did you do when this loss felt so hard? What did you do when trauma and grief struck your family? It's revealing for many of us where we trust. And the frank reality is that when the gospel is fully rooted in our lives, it creates systematic change in everything. And I think often we give lip service to trust and we give lip service to what faith is and we're trying and we are trying. There's no doubt about that. But we give lip service to something and then we fail to follow through with it in regards to our actions. When the gospel's grounded in us, when you have been transformed and engaged in a meaningful way, it changes everything. We as Americans often like to compartmentalize it. We make it about me. It impacts me and me alone. But that's not what the gospel really does. The gospel starts with me. It changes me and my relationship to myself and to God, but it quickly then from there bleeds over to friends and family, to those that are part of my inmost circle. It changes the way I interact. It creates places of empathy. It creates opportunities to engage with one another in a real and meaningful way in which it invites me. The gospel invites me instead of saying the zinger that I know I want to say and I know is going to tear him down to say, Maybe there's another way. It changes the way we impact the neighborhoods. It changes the way we impact and engage with strangers. 
It changes the fact that we have refugee programs because that is what the gospel is for. It is for transformation of cultures that begins with us and radiates outwards. It changes the way we run businesses. It changes the way we run and engage in cities. It changes everything when it's rooted down at the core. The challenge that many of us have is that we trust in Jesus and we trust in other things and that creates a tension for us. And I'm not saying that it's simply as as simple as saying I trust in Jesus. But I think if we're to follow that Christ is king, we need to understand our terrain and the landscape before us. And we need to realize the things in life that we unintentionally have given our trust over to. Let me rephrase. I think for me to follow Jesus, for me to be the disciple that I think he calls me to, I need to look at the landscape around me and realize the things that I unintentionally place my trust in. And so here's how I want to end. I want to invite you, I want to invite you into a time of reflection, into a time to think and to pray and to ask. What do you put your trust in? In your worship guide, if you have one, or it's on the app too, there's a space for a couple of blanks. We're going to take a moment of silence, and I'll pray before we do that. Don't fill it out now. There will be a moment of silence, and we'll invite God to speak to us. What are the things that we collectively and individually place our trust in? And in light of that, then what do we need to do? Maybe our trust is in things that are worthy of our trust. And so we need to amplify those or multiply those. Maybe there are things we need to, aren't not worthy of our trust and we need to stop doing those. I want to leave that open, but I want to invite that kind of response because for me, this is the continual question. This is the thing around which everything else turns. Where do I place my trust? What do I unintentionally worship? And where do I find faith and hope? So I'm going to pray. I'll invite Randy to come up and he's going to play a little bit of music while we have some time to write and process. And I invite you to take your time. Don't rush. Don't write down the first three things or the first thing that comes to mind. Take a moment and think and ask God, what would you tell me in the midst of this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are imperfect people who are trying our best to follow you. God, we take a moment to examine our lives and to ask honestly, where do we place our trust? Not that there is guilt, not that you are a father who shames or a king who causes anxiety, but help us take account of our life. In our moments of crisis, in our moments of joy, where is our trust? Speak to us, God. 
and show us your will for us in the midst of this moment. I invite you to take a moment and just reflect and think. Where is your trust? And in light of that, what should you do? as you feel led, I invite you to write something down. No arm twisting, no guilt, but as a means of processing, as a means of thinking. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you meet us, that you encounter us, that moments of assessment and confession are not moments of guilt, but moments where you meet us with grace, where you meet us with mercy, and you invite us in as your children, and you say, this is my son and my daughter, whom I love, and them I am well pleased. Warts and all, trust misplaced in all. God, may we trust you more and grow to be more like you day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.